Welcome to Level with Emily Reese. This is music by Gareth Coker for the VR magic fighting game called The Unspoken. If you're familiar with Gareth's music from Ori and the Blind Forest, this is not that, nor orchestra, but lots of live musicians featured and you'll hear more about that shortly. Gareth is also our guest for this week's five song session that's available tomorrow for patrons. We'll start off with patron of the week, Kevin Anderson, who sent me a great list of music from Jack Wall and Nathan Johnson from Mass Effect 2 and Infamous Second Son, respectively. We start off talking about how he chose his favorite music to send us. Tally was always on there. Even before Mass Effect 2 came out, they put out these little trailers, these little commercials for who who your squad is going to be. Sure. And one of them was for Tally. I'm pretty sure this was the same music that was used in that trailer for her. And I go, oh yeah, that's cool. Nice to have someone from the old crew back. That's great. And I, I kind of like Tally. And then it ends, not like I wasn't going to buy the game or play it or whatever in the first place, but it ends with the hook, Tally Zora, you've been found guilty of treason and here hereby sentenced to exile. And I go, what? Tally? How's she <laughs> yeah. betraying the Quarians? I mean, how is right? that possible? Well, it does have its slow moments and times, but that song, is, it sounds like something you can run to. Mm-hmm. It's got that sort of sound in it, which it's always when I was getting excited, getting pumped up. And let's face it, what, the other day, if you watched E3 yeah, in the, the PlayStation uh, conference, mm-hmm. Sean Layden came in and left to Tally. It's a great track, and I love that series so much. Now, did you play the new one? Yes, I did. I, I like it. I like it better than uh, most people did. You know, I'm not playing it every day like I played three. I think I started it, and I just binged as much as I could and did all the side quests and all that crazy stuff. And the, mm-hmm. and it kind of got a little burned out, but I, I think I'll go back to it. I've only did one playthrough, one male writer playthrough, and I'll get the the femme writer in there and get Sarah in there and see what happens, you know, playing it that way. I was so happy to see songs from Infamous on your list because I got into that series because that was one of the, the first, Infamous was one of the free games we could choose after the big... PlayStation Network outage uh, a few years back. I don't know if you remember oh, that, yeah. but that was one of the yeah. big games that they offered. 
and I downloaded it and I loved it. I was like, this is the super kind of superhero game I want to play, you know, like this. I just had such a blast with it. And so I've just stuck with the series ever since and um, always enjoyed the music. And I remember the, the spray paint music. So talk to me a little bit about that track. That's uh, in what? Second Son. Yeah. Yep. Second Serial Son. Serial Tiger. Yeah. Yep, serial tiger. Serial that's tiger. It. Yeah. After uh, high school, I I went into uh, I took two years of radio broadcasting in uh, at Austin Tech in nice. Austin, Minnesota. Nice. And when I was on air, I would always, especially if I'm doing a late shift, I'd always end with something like instrumentally or, or memorable. Well, mm-hmm. not necessarily memorable, but it was my signature sign off end of the night because we had to shut down at like 1230 or whatever it was was uh, mm-hmm. Dave Ka's Castles of Dreams which is the jazz saxophone type thing and this which is completely different from this because this is mainly guitar but it, I sort of got that feeling that feeling of soaring from the song I mean because yeah. when you're doing the spray painting stuff it's kind of a cool look. He's doing this Banksy type uh, spray paint yep. artwork, but you kind of want don't want to finish it because the song's playing. I always felt like this would be something I would end my shift with if I was still doing radio or whatever. Nice. It's got that sort of uplifting feeling, but it's just one of those standout sort of songs that you go, yeah, this is feeling good. And that tied with how fun that side quest is because I love, I thought it was so creative, the mechanic they used with the DualShock to kind of flip it and use one of the um, bottom triggers as a, you know, a a spray nozzle. So much fun. It's so, it was so weird to get used to though. I mean, oh, this is how it kind of works. Yeah. Move around. Kevin's other choices were The Last Array by Michael Salvatore, C. Paul Johnson, and Martin O'Donnell from Destiny. Rabble Rouser from the first infamous game by Eamon Tobin.
and Asimov by 65 Days of Static from No Man's Sky. You can learn about becoming a patron of the week at patreon.com slash level. Gareth Coker got a lot of recognition for his music to Ori in the Blind Forest, and it's well-deserved because that soundtrack is super. He's since been working on a handful of other projects, and he'll talk about that briefly in the beginning, so I don't need to tell you what those are. Uh, his newest score is for The Unspoken, and this is from Insomniac Games. And Gareth does such a fantastic job explaining it. And believe me, this is right up my alley. I cannot wait to play this game. Uh, So Gareth does such a good job explaining it that I'm going to let him just go for it in a minute. Uh, But as for the music, there is no orchestra in this score. There are live musicians, and they include Bonnie Brooksbank on various types of violins, Tina Guo on cello, and singer Mimi Page, along with a drummer named Matt Laug. different opportunities, one of them them being Minecraft, one of them being Ark Survival Evolved, and then uh, further on down the line, working with Insomniac Games on The Unspoken, which I believe is what we're talking about mostly today. So there's always stuff happening, basically. Um, So I, I definitely can't complain about the work situation at the moment. It's really just finding time to do everything properly um, and give everything, uh, make everyone feel like they're all loved, basically. Let's definitely talk about The Unspoken. I remember when we were on a panel together, uh, I think in 2016, that you were able to announce that that had just kind of come to fruition and uh, or something along those lines. And 
I love Insomniac games. I, I love uh, playing their games. I think they they tend, for me and my tastes anyway, do a really good job. And they do a good job with music too. So tell us what The Unspoken is, and then we'll get into the nitty gritty because there's a lot of it. So The Unspoken is a virtual reality magic fighting game. So basically, imagine a game like Mortal Kombat or Street Fighter, but in virtual reality and you're a wizard. <laughs> there's a bunch of different characters and different classes. There were three on the initial release and there's actually been two more added to the game since then. So on the initial release, which is mostly what we'll talk about today, is it was the Anarchist, the Kineticist, and the blackjack character and then since then they've added a character called electromancer and a character called drifter and all of these characters have different magic spells that you can cast against your foe um, and the key to winning the game is not just going all out attack or being all out defense you kind of have to blend the two and it's quite it's quite a physical game because you all of the spells are cast with gestures which you use with the uh, Oculus Touch controllers. They do a great job of teaching you the basic concepts in the tutorial for e in the tutorial for each character. So the it's one of those games it's easy to start playing but very hard to master, which mm -hmm. is I think the key of a good fighting game. Like you want to you want to feel like you're doing awesome stuff the moment <laughs> you pick up the controller. Yeah. But you also don't want to feel like you've mastered the game in, in 10 minutes. It sounds super fun. You're a gamer, and I'm sure you've played it. Yes, I have, yep. Yeah, so, uh, I mean, talk to me about it from a perspective of being a gamer, and then, then we'll get into the music. Right. I was a VR skeptic before I tried it, and I went over to Insomniac's Burbank studio and, and tried it out for the first time. And when it's done right, it really does take you to another world. Like games are always talking about taking you to another world, but VR actually does that because you're able to block out absolutely everything yeah. um, because your peripheral vision is in the world. Now, because this is a magic-based game, there's all kinds of different things coming at you left, right, and center. You, you, if, if, when you're casting a spell, you know, you've got fireballs, you've got electric bolts. Um, the Kineticist character can move objects. So you've got objects coming towards you. Each level has a unique, uh, how can I put it, summonable monster. The best description I can give you is the one that they actually released this week. One of the levels has a giant Ferris wheel, but when the large monster is summoned, the Ferris wheel turns into a mechanical spider. <laughs> and we're talking about a huge Ferris wheel here, like yeah. you know, the, si the size of a building. So imagine that kind of thing in that scale in VR. So your overriding like feeling at the beginning is like, oh my goodness, how do I process everything? Now, once you get to grips with that, then your brain, your once your brain basically adapts to the speed of the game, everything kind of, you know, everything starts to slow down and you can actually figure out exactly what it is you need to do. But at first, the, the game, and I think any VR game is like this, the, because it's, it's such a new experience for your brain to handle, it can just be very intense. We've got mm -hmm. crazy visuals. We're asking you to perform lots and lots of gestures and you've got intense music all hitting you at the same time. <laughs> 
But it's a fighting game. Isn't that what you want? Exactly. Um, and, that's, and, that's, and that's kind of what Insomniac was going for with the music. Like the, the, I, th- I think the temp track they sent, it was like really heavy music from the British rave scene of the 90s. So they, got, they had stuff by like the, the band The Prodigy. And they also tempted a track from the recent Judge Dredd movie, which is very electronic with very heavy drums. And I was like, okay, well, this is a bit different to Ori. Let's, uh, let's submit a pitch. And... Uh, for whatever reason, they must have done a blind. They must have done a blind test because I have a feeling that if they'd looked at who was submitting the uh, the pitch, they'd be like, "Really, the Ori composer? Nah, I don't think so." But eventually, they they I was I was lucky enough to get picked, um, and it was just it's just so nice to do something that is literally the opposite of what I'm normally doing. That said, there is some stuff. There are some techniques from Ori that ended up in the music for the Unspoken, but overall, it's just a completely different, different sound world, and it's just so cool to be able to do something with really zany, over-the-top visuals, and also deliver something where they're like, okay, don't be afraid to dial up the intensity. So there's the three main characters and then you know they added a couple but as yes. yeah but let's focus on those three because yeah. they, they basically each have on the soundtrack three tracks of their own so nine tracks yep. and they're long I mean you include the whole build of intensity which I really really appreciate getting to hear you know how the character develops musically over the course of a, a battle is my assumption Yes. And uh, yeah, that was that was really neat. So so talk to me a bit about each character, and then you also brought in really special guest musicians to perform for each yeah. character, and uh, then the drummer too, which we'll get to. Yes. But uh, but yeah, so so let's start with the three characters. So yeah, the three characters that the game initially released with were the Anarchist, the Kineticist, and Blackjack. Mm-hmm. So the Anarchist, as you can guess by the name, the main power is, is the use of fire, fire and destruction. The Kineticist, the main uh, idea with the spells that, that you are casting is uh, the ability to move objects. The Blackjack is kind of a, a mystery jack-of-all-trades uh, <laughs> character. Each of these three characters, based on their description, kind of needed a unique voice because not only not only are the look of the spells different, the way the characters move and the time it takes to perform the gestures is slightly different as well. <laughs> For example, one one gesture you know might take a long time to cast, but it might be extremely powerful. The blackjack or the kineticist character might have simpler gestures, but they're not they're not as powerful. They don't do as much damage to the player. Generally, though, Insomniac are quite good at at balancing out the abilities between the characters, so one never feels overpowered. But they all had to have a unique sound. The brief was, it needs to feel like it's part of the same game, but the characters all need to feel 
like they have a unique theme. Mm -hmm. So my solution for that was to kind of have a core, which was the the same across all the tracks, um, and that was with that was with the the live drums and a lot of the the more bassier synth sounds and the textures that occurred in each track. Mm -hmm. But I wanted to feature a soloist on each of the main characters. So for the Anarchist. I had Tina Guo play on the electric cello. Um, the electric cello and mainly Tina's style of playing fit the character's personality perfectly. Kineticist because it's uh, a slightly more nimble character and I wanted something that uh, had a bit more movement. I chose to use Bonnie Brooksbank on the electric violin just because the shorter notes would cut through in the mix a little bit more. And then with the Blackjack character, I went totally mysterious and ethereal uh, and used Mimi Page, who's, uh, who's also a composer herself, but she's, uh, she's very well known for doing a lot of uh, singing work with bass nectar. Her voice is perfect for doing this kind of really ethereal, mystical stuff. So having those three wildly different personalities, I always feel like when you're hiring a musician, especially a soloist, you're, you're not just hiring someone to play the notes, you're, you're hiring a personality to interpret the notes. And without wishing to blow my own trumpet, I think I did a good job matching up <laughs> the personalities with, uh, with the characters. It's just kind of like casting, really. It's something that Hans Zimmer is extremely good at. He's always you know, casting the right player for the right, the right sound in a lot of his scores. Um, and uh, yeah, it's something I tried to do here and I think it worked out okay. When you are writing a score that you know is going to be mostly orchestral, mm -hmm. you you have your palette more or less. <laughs> you know, you kind of know what you're working with. And when that is not the case and you're working with electronic music, I mean, the possibilities are infinite. So how do you narrow down an atmosphere when you're creating something like that? Now, granted, they gave you temp tracks, which gave you a, a good idea, but you still have to choose the sounds and choose yep. the, the overall design of it. Yep. 
You know, it's funny, a lot of people ask me this because my scores are generally quite heavily textured and layered with lots of different things going on. It is nice to use the orchestra just ex exclusively. I mean, even on Ori, like there's there's a lot of other stuff in addition to the orchestra. Now on the Unspoken, <laughs> there is no orchestra, so as, mm. you, as you point out. So honestly, I really just spend a lot of time fiddling about. And some days I don't get any writing done, but that's okay. The writing process for me includes the choice of sounds. And if it means I don't actually write any music during a day, it doesn't mean I got nothing done because what actually happens is that I rejected a lot of ideas during that day. And what happens is, is a lot of sounds get rejected. Generally for each character though, I had, I basically put together a palette of about 70 to 100 different synth sounds that I thought would be appropriate. And I definitely didn't use all of them because there's, there starts to become like some common sounds that just start working for the, for the character. Um, so basically, I start off by being very generous with the amount of sounds I'm choosing and then gradually I just try to narrow it down and be more ruthless about what I like and what I don't like about certain sounds. There isn't really a quick way to do it. You kind of just have to fire up a lot of different synths um, and just play around with them. Uh, and it's not really just about the sounds, it's about the effects on the sounds too. Even with the, you know, for example, the electric cello, we could have just recorded the electric cello completely dry and it probably would have been great. But then you want to add reverb, then you want to add delay, then you want to add distortion, then you want to add phasing. And, there, and then you maybe want to add after you put all those effects on, maybe you want to add another layer of distortion and a different type of distortion. There's, there's, there's so many ways you can warp a sound. It's a complete, it, it can be a complete nightmare and you can get lost going deep into the rabbit hole and never come back. Right. But that's where deadlines help. Um, <laughs> but yeah, there's really no two ways about it, at least as far as I'm concerned. I, I love the experimentation part. I love trying to blend weird sounds together. Uh, and the way I generally think of it is kind of triangle-based. Basically, one low sound equals two medium-pitched sounds equals three high-pitched sounds. That's how I generally try to balance things out. There's obviously exceptions to that rule, mm -hmm. but I rarely have like two bass sounds competing with each other because then things just get messy. But if you have a strong bass, you kind of need two things in the middle to, to play off each other and uh, use that bass as a foundation. And then the high stuff is kind of just the, the ear candy on top. So that's how I like structure all of my sequences, all of my recordings. It's about, you know, 50% high sounds, 30% medium sounds, and then uh, the remainder low sounds and I draw from that palette when I'm putting together the tracks. There's a really neat behind the scenes video and you talk about how you you know, can't really substitute the acoustic um, 
part. You you need to, or you chose to really have both in there. So yep. you know, Bonnie, for instance, bringing in an electric violin and an acoustic violin. T- yep. Talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah, it's one of those things where you kind of just you kind of just want the choice. You know, uh, sometimes when you're going in writing stuff like this which you know you think i've got to write an electronic soundtrack well what is an electronic soundtrack it doesn't have to be exclusively electronic and you can make an acoustic recording sound electronic if you want to so really it was just about having the option let's record the same thing on both acoustic and electric and see which sounds better because when i started i just didn't know and you you kind of don't know until the recording so i just made sure i had enough time to to record both and Honestly, even better, there's several times where if you, if you listen in headphones, I think we did it on both the cello and the violin, on the left-hand side of the stereo image, you've got the acoustic violin, and on the right-hand side, you've got the electric violin. It's just like interesting stuff like that, mm-hmm. which you can't try out if you've only recorded one of the instruments. Right. But how on earth can you know, really, if this stuff is going to work before the recording? You, you kind of don't. So you just have to, to build in the time to experiment. Mm-hmm. And then it's just a case of as quickly as possible trying to find out what works uh, while you're on the clock at the recording. Mm-hmm. Fortunately, that's something, that's a skill I've been able to, to hone uh, over the years is being able to, to filter out the stuff that's not so good and kind of learn to, to cherry pick accurately. So tell me about the drummer then, because you could, of course, have made all those beats uh, synthetically as well. This is another case of where, you know, sometimes we're blending the electronic with the acoustic drums, but we did have acoustic drums as samples beforehand, and they were fine. But then Matt Laug, our, our drummer, who's probably most well-known for playing on Alanis Morissette's album, best-selling album in the mid-90s, Jagged Little Pill. Mm. He came in and on the first track, I'm like, okay, that's why we hired a real drummer. It's less about like the the actual drums themselves. It's kind of what's happening in between. When you're doing stuff digitally, everything is so incredibly accurate. And that's not to say that Matt was inaccurate, but it just feels slightly different. It's mm-hmm. it's kind of difficult to explain, but it's 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 not a machine playing. You can feel that it's a real human. You can feel that it's not the exact same snare drum sound uh, each time. Plus, to be quite honest with you, the sound is just better with a real drummer with good drums and with like the insane amount of microphones that we use. I think we use something like 25 microphones to record the drum kit. And it's a huge kit though too. It's a huge kit. He brought, I think it was 13 drums uh, with cymbals. There were probably more than that. I, I, it's it's a very large kit. I, I said, bring me a rock kit, but then bring me more, um, especially, <laughs> especially the number of toms. There are some fantastic drum fills, which he does. Yes. Um, 
that's really just the sound I wanted. I wanted those really big epic drum fills because they make things more dynamic. And that's the one thing which a drummer can do that a composer, unless you're a percussionist or a drummer, drummers can do really way better fills than a composer can. It's just, that's just a fact. Like I can do the basic grooves, but when it comes to the fills, no, I, I can't do what Matt does. We were recording in East West Studios, Studio 2, which is one of the best rock rooms maybe in the country. A lot of rock bands have recorded there, including Muse, I think. And it's got really high ceilings, which is great for drums. And cool. I went in there while Matt was playing, and if you don't take ear earplugs while you're in there, I mean, you'll go deaf in no wow. time at all. Even with the earplugs, it was still... He's just a force of nature. He was incredibly accurate too, which made things nice when we got to the mixing stage because we were asking him to know, we need you to play with the electronic drums as well, um, which is easier said than done. Sure. Basically, we need you to be a machine, but not a machine. So you're kind of asking uh, a drummer to do kind of two things at once, but he just came in and... Uh, it's a lot of music to record, and we did it all in we did it all in six hours um, with him. So, and this is not light drumming. It's it's Matt hammering the drums very hard for a long period of time. Kind of the glue that brought everything together because just having the live drums on there made everything kind of feel alive but also because it was the same kind of drum sound across all the tracks uh, it made it start it started to make it feel like it was all part of the same score I'm going to butcher these pronunciations, okay. but Pronuntiatio, maybe? It's the sixth track. Pronuntiatio is, I, I don't even know if I'm pronouncing it correctly. I just, cho <laughs> I just chose fake Latin titles because they sounded awesome. <laughs> but this is actually the, the first track I wrote for the game because okay. it was used for the announcement trailer way back in... April 2016-ish. So this was actually this was actually written, scored for the trailer. And yeah, it was kind of a baptism by fire, really, because I'm like, okay, well, I have to come up with the sound world, and it has to match the visuals, and it has to be in sync with the video, and I've got like four days to do it. I obviously kind of knew what kind of thing they wanted, but mm -hmm. uh, yeah, that, this track is basically where everything kind of was born from. But yeah, it basically it was composed to follow the video, but it's, it's a good track to use as a template because it kind of goes through as an ambient beginning and then it kind of builds to something, you know, with a little bit more intensity and then it finishes with something really powerful. And so I was like, okay, well, we've kind of got a template for how we're going to structure the suites that we're writing for all of the characters later in the game. Each character's suite of music has an ambient track, uh, a basic battle track, an escalated battle track, and then a track for when each map's uh, summonable large monster appears, um, and they all have to be interchangeable on the fly. 
So this pronunciatio track was kind of like a, a template for that, but it also had to fit the announcement trailer. So tell me a little bit about some of the techniques that you asked the string players to do and how much right. of it was them just improvising and kind of going through things that way. I'll start with Tina on that. I mean, Tina has a, a style of playing where she switches where her fingers are on, I'm going to butcher the terminology, on the bridge, I think, basically where, or what, no, where she's where she's bowing the instrument. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's between, the articulation is called sol ponticello and mm-hmm. sol tasto, and it just depends on where the, where the bow is on the instrument. And when you're switching that all the time, you get kind of a really cool metallic-y sound that really works for this style of music. That's like the main technique which translated across all of the string instruments. As for improvisation, I would say that about 70% of it was notes that they were given and 30% of it was like, okay, you've kind of got an idea of what we've been playing. Now I just need you to accentuate that and go crazy. <laughs> so in in a couple of Tina's tracks, like, she, she, you know, she might have a melody and then I'm like, okay, take that melody and dial it up to 11, add some <laughs> extra notes, add some extra runs or something. Just make it... I, honestly, I think at one point I said to her, just make it more like Tina. <laughs> <laughs> uh, which which I think she understands. I mean, she's not stupid. She knows she knows like why I like asked her to do the gig. Like mm-hmm. the, one, you know, it's 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 coming back to you're hiring a personality. Like I, right. I needed her personality in the notes. The notes would have been fine if she just played them as they were on the page. But when when you encourage a musician to uh, to push the boat out a little bit, you can get some you can get some awesome results. So yeah, generally we do a couple of playthroughs, and I'm like, well, okay, let, now I want to hear what you do with some improvisation on this little section. The other cool thing about capturing improvisations is because they're a little bit more free. You can do they end up you can end up using them as really cool effects elsewhere in the piece. Like there's just things that can happen that you hadn't, might not have ever heard before. And I'm like, oh, I can, instead of using that for this improvisation, I can actually just take this little two second bit and use it as a weird effect somewhere else. I think on almost every recording now, I'm going to allow the musician to improvise on whatever I've written because you just never know. Something better might happen. It might not be any good, but I think uh, composer owes it to themselves to to at least uh, offer the musician the opportunity to improvise. I mean, after all, what's all that training for if they can't get an opportunity to use it? Gareth, thank you so much for talking with me about the unspoken. It was really great. Thanks, Emily. Uh, it was great to uh, great to kind of do a post mortem on it as well because <laughs> this, this is definitely like the the most extensive interview I've done about it. So thank you. Thanks for listening to episode seventy four of Level with Emily Reese. 
You can learn more about Gareth Coker at patreon.com slash level and at gareth-coker.net. He's also in the usual spots like Bandcamp and Twitter. Patrons, you'll be treated to quite the fascinating list of Gareth's five favorite songs still this week. If you want in on the five songs action, you can learn how at patreon.com slash level. I'm Emily Reese. Sam Keenan is our producer. Say hi, Sam. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Level with Emily and learn more about us at levelwithemily.com, which is made possible by Adam Selvage at tikiwebservices.com and Brad Gentle. Level with Emily Reese is a production of June Media Incorporated.